Welcome back to the LCS Podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. On today's program, I talk with Jeff Burke about his conlanging project set in his con world, Desaria, and his novel, The Spirit Weaver. Jeff has been working on The Spirit Weaver for a better part of 15 years and has been writing fiction conlanging for even longer. Today, we discuss his conlangs, his writing, and the status of conlanging in literature. You can find out more about Jeff's work on his blog, which can be found at weavingdasarea.wordpress.com. That's W-E-A-V-I-N-G-D-A-S-Z-E-R-I-A dot wordpress dot com. Thanks for talking with me, Jeff. To start off with, why don't you tell us about your conlanging project, your massive conlanging project, I would characterize it. The whole thing? Um, <laughs> sure. The project of which you know my conlangs are related, it's a fictional world called Desaria that is my vision of a pseudo-Pleistocene North America that is inhabited by a number of different cultures, some of whom are inspired by various uh, American Indian tribes and their traditions. There are some white Saxon-type cultures although they are relative newcomers to this area, the Western nations who are the oldest and are inspired by American Indians have been on the continent for some 5,000 years, whereas uh, white men have only been there for less than 1,000. Just a quick question. Is this an alternate version of, say, the North American continent, or is this uh, a completely new landscape? Geographically, it's an artistic vision of what, geographically speaking, North America would have been like, say, 30 to 50,000 years ago, just before the Wisconsin glaciation, which is the most recent ice age, so to speak. The geography, large parts of it are very much based on what we know or, you know, know, what we've been able to deduce that the land looked like, while there are, you know, some, a few more fanciful parts that are, you know, my own invention, but nevertheless, they are geologically plausible, even if there's no particular evidence that such a thing existed. Um, It could have. Uh, Nothing per se is impossible, but, you know, it very much is continuous or intended to be continuous with modern North America geographically. Okay, so when it comes to the actual conlangs, how many language families does the entire Desarian continent comprise? In order to answer that, you have to take a step back in time to before Desaria was even inhabited. There was, in the early days of mankind, a continent which would have sat on what is now the North Pole, and its name in Noyatoa, which is a you know, one of the one of my main conlangs, is Loamanlo. It was a continent that was shaped rather like the outstretched wings of a bird, and it was the original homeland of all of mankind. And there were, in the beginning, on Loamanlo, fifteen distinct language families that developed. Some of these became extinct 
through the annihilation, basically, of their speakers during a series of cataclysms. And surviving into modern Desaria are several that I have worked out or worked on to some degree. The main family is the Central Mountain family, although there's also the languages that white men speak, which their main language is called Bankaska, and it, it's completely unrelated to the Central Mountain languages. And there are also minor families that I have, you know, sketched, not worked out in any great detail of certain peoples who live on what is now the Great Plains and in the southwest and the southeast of this area, which those parts are much less developed than uh, the northwest and the northeast, but there, there are about half a dozen remaining families that I have that, that survived you know, the early Earth, what is called the first Earth, before the cataclysm that destroyed Loamalo. That sounds like a pretty enormous project. It reminds me a bit of, and I always mispronounce this, the Ilbethsiad project, except that whereas that project is being worked on by who knows how many conlangers. This one is just coming from you. Yeah, it, it is enormous. In addition to the conlangs, there's a whole mythology that goes along with them, and it's the dramatic setting in which they exist and develop and unfold stretching back a total of about 12,000 years from the very beginnings to what I consider contemporary Desaria, which is Desaria as it exists at the time of the book that I'm writing at the moment. Before we get to your writing, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what inspired this entire world or the creation, uh, where you draw your inspiration from. That's a somewhat difficult question to answer. The reason that I do it um, it started out with me just writing disconnected stories about various people and various characters when I was, you know, when I was very, when I was young, you know, I was uh, early teens when I started it. And it wasn't until later that I started to draw the, the stories together and start to connect them and, you know, build bridges between them. And of course they grew along the way and it just took on a life of its own and it became just something I enjoy doing. That that's the personal reason that I do it. The actual inspiration, a lot of it, you know, you know, as I said, comes from uh, American Indian tribes, traditions, languages, uh, even to some degree their history, both prehistoric and you know post-European contact. Although nothing is, it, it, you know, I, I would resist calling it a you know a retelling of that but it, it definitely takes some inspiration from it. You actually have a personal connection with uh, the Native American community. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I have a number of Native friends, uh, both on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Montana and on the Aquasasne Res in upstate New York and uh, lower Ontario. The first Native friend I ever made was a professor named Bill Moy. He was a professor from McGill who was visiting uh, Ball State University, where I went to college. His main thing was to teach a seminar in Iroquoian anthropology and archaeology. 
but some of his the satellite courses that he taught, one of them was an introduction to Mohawk. And these classes were intended for third and fourth year students of juniors and seniors. And at the time, I was a freshman. I was in just my second semester of my college career. And I went to him and, you know, basically, you know, begged to be in the cl- in these classes. <laughs> and uh, apparently I made an impression on him and, you know, he let me in. And I, you know, I'm still friends with him to this day. And through him, I met a number of other friends, including a Cheyenne linguist uh, by the name of Dan Alford, who, uh, well, he, he passed on in 2003, he went by the name of Moonhawk. He was of Cheyenne descent and grew up in the academic world and eventually, you know, went back and found his roots, so to speak. He had a lot of influence on me, especially how I viewed these languages, and through him and uh, another guy that he introduced me to named Wayne Lehman, who was a, a fairly famous Cheyenne linguist. Through them, I made a number of Native friends over the years, and we talk quite often, mostly email these days. And I haven't been out to see them in some time, but uh, I anticipate getting back out there, you know, in the next year or so. When did let's say, uh, Native American culture first capture your imagination? And what kind of uh, inspired you to really do something with it, do something artistic with it? Well, I've been interested in American Indians you know, since I was a little boy. I remember in the house where I grew up, well, where my mom still is to this day, there was a, it wasn't life-size, but it was a very large carved statuette of a Sioux warrior, hmm. uh, you know, in battle dress right. with a feathered headdress and holding a spear. And I remember being very, my imagination being captured by that particular artifact. It was just something that, you know, my mom had sitting around the house. And, you know, my father would, you know, tell me stories, some of the things that he, you know, heard about, you know, Indians. And, and he didn't know that much, but he would point me in the right direction, you know, to things to read and, you know, investigate. And I grew up, you know, being fascinated by them. And by the time that I got to college, at that point, you know, I was interested enough, you know, to start taking classes in it. I I didn't the first semester that I was there, but the second semester I did when the Iroquoian classes came up because my roommate at the time was an archaeology major and this was in his course book for the for the archaeology department and I was looking at it and I said oh wow I really love to take those classes Mm, and he pointed me to the professor that was handling it and at that point you know that started my semi-professional career you know studying this stuff that's how you want to view it. Uh, it's a pretty good stroke of luck, too, So, uh, because, you know, visiting professors are never there for very long as well. Right. Um, I always, I have to tell you, I always wanted to study a Native American language of some kind. And I remember the only chance I ever got was, I think it was when I was leaving UCSD, I saw a flyer up somewhere that there was going to be a course on Nahuatl. But, of course, that was on my way out. There aren't a whole lot of schools that, you know, teach this stuff. Or if they teach it, they'll teach 
it infrequently. They'll have maybe one class every three or four years on, you know, a certain language. These are fairly obscure languages, so they're a very small corner of the linguistics world, and they, they always have been. So you don't find them taught really that much. It really was a stroke of luck for me, and it technically, you know, I shouldn't have even been in those classes, but, <laughs> you know, the professors, they make their own rules. You know, they let you in. But, you know, looking back at it, it was one of the big steps that I took. Because if I hadn't done that, I really don't think I would have gotten into the languages as heavily or done you know, the degree of conlanging in that area that I have done, simply because right after that is when the conlangs really took off. Prior to that, I had done just really scribblings and uh, attempts at what the languages of these peoples that I was imagining would sound like and be like. But I really had no actual material to work from. I mean, the, at that point, the only foreign languages that I had ever studied were you know, French and German in high school. And I remember using in the, the, the very earliest conlangs that I'd ever done, throwing in you know, some French grammar and oddities that you know, sparked my imagination. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after I'd run into Mohawk that then, you know, I completely re-threw away the vast majority of what I'd done and started from scratch with it as the main inspiration. And over the years, I branched out into Cheyenne and Algonquin and some of the Uduaztecan languages and Mathabaskan and, you know, a few things here and there. Uh, you know, adding to my repertoire. But that really was the big step, the Mohawk class. All right, now let's switch focus a bit and first just tell us in general about your writing and then maybe you can tell us about your project. I consider myself primarily you know, a fiction writer. I've written fiction in one mode or another where it's actually, whether actually, you know, writing it out or drawing stories on paper, you know, since I was a little kid. Uh, it started so early, you know, that impulse that it's eerie. <laughs> and I've been doing it all my life. And, you know, that's where I find, you know, my greatest pleasure. You know, and, you know as fun as conlanging is, you know, I find, you know, fiction writing far more satisfying, at least in an emotional way. Tell us about your main project right now, the one that, uh, according to your blog... By the way, can you go ahead and tell us the URL for your blog? It is weavingdesaria, all one word, dot wordpress.com. I'm very bad at updating it. There are about eight or nine posts for the last nine months, but when I update, it's usually something big. It's not, you know, just hey, you know, I wrote 10,000 words today or something about like that. It, it's something major. I really do need to start updating it more. But that's where I've been blogging about the project, which the book that I'm working on right now is called The Spirit Weaver, and it's to form part of a series of books set in contemporary Desaria. And it's the culmination of a lot of the issues and the themes that are developed in the mythology it brings them to a head. It brings them full circle and resolves them. And it's a very ambitious book. 
I've been working on it, you know, for quite a while now, and the end is finally in sight. There's just so much material that I've written on it, including, you know, notes and sketches and, you know, things to go through that it takes a long time to do it. And I'm very much a perfectionist. Things have to satisfy me because if they don't, you know, I'll live, you know, with the nagging doubt that it's not everything that it could be. And I go back and redo things all the time. Although I find now that as I get closer to the end, I find myself checking that impulse more often because, you know, I've been thinking about and working on this stuff for years and you can always second guess yourself, but I've got things pretty much as I want them. And a lot of the work has already been done in the form of sketches and notes and thinking through plot lines and character arcs and things of that nature. It's just a matter of getting it down in words, which I'm also a perfectionist there. You know, I write very few sentences that I don't, you know, end up rewriting and niggling over. (laughs) Right. So were you going to start adding stuff to your conlang.org website? Yeah, I'm planning on using that as a central repository for all the Desarian material that I put online because there are a couple of different sites that I've been using to store images and documents and things of that nature, and I just need a central place to put it all. And that's where I'm, I'm, I'm going to make my Conlang subdomain. That's going to be, you know, Desarius home on the web, so to speak. In your blog, you mentioned that you were imagining this to be a work of about 150 to 160,000 words. And for the general listener, I would say that about seventy to 75,000 words is an average 300-page novel, a finished 300-page novel that you'd pick up in the store. Yeah. So where are you at right now? I am at actually about the 80,000-word mark at the moment, although I've been writing the thing in sections. And right now I'm going through my notes and sketches for what, for this book at least, I hope will be the last time getting everything in order and putting it in my big red notebook binder, which I use to organize all the notes and sketches that I've made in the past. And I've done that several times. It would have been wiser, you know, looking back at it, to go through the notes just once. But, you know, I would go through all the notes and look for those that pertain to, you know, the first third of the book or, you know, chapters one through six and then write those, then go through again for what would pertain to the next third of the book, and so on. Just simply because I was very you know, excited to write it. I wanted to get on with the writing of it, and it was quicker. Right. Yeah. But you know, the next one, I'm not going to do that way. I'm going to go through the notes one time at one time only for the whole book. It'll save me significant time, I hope. You set, I read in your blog you set yourself a hard deadline of August 2009. Is that deadline still set? Yes, it is. All right. Wow. Well, I really wish you uh, good luck in, in reaching it. I know what it's like to have a monumental task like that and to just kind of see it before you. And I'm really excited to see it completed. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question about the role that your languages play in the story, just what role do they play? 
How much do we see them? How much are you planning to include? I'm thinking of, for example, Tolkien, you know, included, you know, all the names, of course, were in his various languages, and there would be snippets of his languages, and then there were the extensive appendices at the end of the series that discussed his languages. What did you envision? The languages are, you know, in a sense, omnipresent. They're present in the place and personal names of many characters. And there are a few small texts so far. There is one, one of the central mountain languages is called Hanawatsi. There is a short prayer in Hanawatsi in the book. That's the only lengthy text so far in any of the conlang. But actually, I anticipate using the languages more in the latter two books because most of the spirit weaver takes place in eastern Bizaria, mm. in what is now you know the American Midwest and upstate New York and central Canada. And this is where a lot of the white, uh, I guess, invaders um, are occupying? Yes, that, okay. that is their general area. And the second and third take place you know, in the West, in the Western nations, which are approximately equivalent to what would today be the Pacific Northwest, the High Plains and Nevada Desert, and coastal California. There are three Western nations approximately corresponding to the Pacific Northwest, the Nevada Desert, and coastal California. And then there will be far more names in those books than in these, but there are quite a few names so far and probably more texts, although it's, I try not to use texts unless I have to, mm -hmm. because, frankly, readers, they see a long text in a foreign language, they're apt to skip that, <laughs> just to kind of glance over it. It's not really dramatically appropriate to do that a lot, so I try not to show off, so to speak. It doesn't make the story better to do that. But, for example, like the Hanawatsi prayer, it comes in a very appropriate point in the book. Mm -hmm. And its content is very appropriate. And I decided to use it. But as far as appendices, yeah, I definitely think there will be some of those. A whole lot of those, in fact. Probably because I... Because, <laughs> like, the big red notebook that I use, whenever there are notes in there that... I don't end up fitting this material in the book. I write right on the page, you know, appendices. <laughs> and there is, oh, uh, let's see, let me open it up right here, I'll take a look. There's about an inch and a half so far of pages that are destined for the appendices. And that's just of material that I wanted to fit in the book, but couldn't, couldn't really find a place for it, didn't really belong. Right. Wow. I would see that as something that would be a lot of fun to look through and work with. I gather that not all readers are like that. And what I wanted to do now was I, I wanted to read you something that's going to raise a couple of issues that I wanted to talk to you about. To preface this, I think that you and I have very similar reading habits, and that usually any book that I name that I've read, you've also read. I'm a voracious reader. I read a lot of different stuff. <laughs> Right. And I, I'm pretty much the same, although I read very, very slowly. <laughs> what I don't read a lot of is I don't read a lot of, let's say, fantasy literature. My wife is a huge fan of fantasy. So I asked her one day 
to give me two books, to give me something funny, and she gave me a Terry Pratchett book called Feet of Clay that was indeed very funny, and something stereotypical, say a very stereotypical fantasy novel. And what she gave me was a novel called Shape Changers by Jennifer Roberson. Have you heard of it by any chance? No, because oddly enough, even though I write, what I write is fantasy, technically, I don't read a whole lot of it. I have in the past, but, you know, as I've you know, gotten a little bit older, a lot of it has, you know, it's receded in importance to me simply because, you know, I'll tell you, I think the fantasy genre, you know, has become, you know, bogged down in the stereotypical pseudo, pseudo-medieval Celtic fairyland. Right. Um, you don't see a lot of other cultures used in fantasy, and almost never, you know, American Indian. I mean, I can think of offhand only a handful of books that have even used anything along that line. Although one that uh, I read recently, well, recently being a couple of years ago, was called The Chosen by Ricardo Pinto. It makes use of some uh, Mayan-esque inspiration. And it's not technically Mayan, it's his own creation, but you know, there's definitely some Mayan material there. And he's written a couple of books since then, but you know, I, I very much enjoyed those. But fantasy has become too bogged down in those you know, those cliches for me to really you know, find it in- enjoyable anymore. So speaking of cliches, this book, Shape Changers, I just wanted to tell you briefly about it. It's just about a girl who is a human, and these humans have a battle with these other humans that can also turn into animals who are characterized as evil and wicked, and then she's abducted by them. And it turns out that she's one of them, and it turns out that they're not as bad and actually that the humans are evil. And they go back and forth with all this stuff. Uh, anyway, in this book, there is a language called Chesuli that the shape changers speak. And it pretty much is what one expects from an average fantasy novel. There are a few words and phrases here and there, apostrophes everywhere, just gratuitously thrown in, and a lot of familiar morphological tidbits. So, for example, you hear Chesuli and you know that it's a language, or at least some sort of an adjective, because it has that E ending on there, which you see a lot of in, you know, languages of this type. Anyway, so... Yeah, I read it. It wasn't that good. But anyway, sometime later, I came across this that was written on Jennifer Roberson's website. It was primarily, I think, in regards to fan fiction. But as you'll see, there's something relevant here. So this is what's written on the website. Uh, This is by Jennifer Roberson. It's kind of an FAQ. Readers constantly write me for permission to use characters, worlds, languages and other details from my stories and books in their personal entertainments, such as fan fiction, role-playing games, and online muds and mushes. In each case, I must refuse permission for this activity. All right, there are two issues that come to me after reading this, uh, and I wanted to get your interpretation on both of these. The first is that I really object to her referring to Chesuli as a language. It really is not very developed at all. It's just what you would expect from kind of a very average fantasy novel, just kind of stuff thrown in there really for color. 
and there's kind of a long tradition of this in fantasy literature outside of people like Tolkien. There are people that just see what's on the page, that there's some sort of other language here, and then they try to emulate it in a way by just plunking stuff down. So now let's say in, in an ideal world, someday five, six, seven years in the future, the Spirit Weaver is completed. You're already working on your second and third books, and they're tremendously successful. There are going to be a number, there are going to be a small portion of readers that are interested in the language material. But then there are going to be a number of other readers that will not be able to distinguish the languages in your books from the languages uh, you know, that are just made up on the spot for all the hundreds of other fantasy novels. What do you think about this? And uh, I, I suppose another question is, if so many readers can't tell the difference, why create an entire language or an entire family of languages for a book when you can just as easily create a bunch of nonsense? that uh, readers will accept? Well, I think primarily I do the conlanging for myself. I do it because you know, it's connected with the mythology, and the two have grown hand in hand. And it's a mistake, I think, to say, at least in my case, that I'm creating the languages for the book. I'm using them in the book, just as I'm using you know, some of the, the mythic material. But that stuff has an independent existence outside of the book, and it's made artistic use of in the book. But it's not created specifically for it. And whether there are readers who can tell the difference or not doesn't really, um, not really an issue for me. I don't really care about that. If people read the books and they want to know more, that type of person who wants, you know, knowledge and lore of the world or whatever, that's fine. And people who don't want it, that's equally fine, too. Because not everybody reads, you know, fantasy for, you know, the ancillary material. They're not interested in it. They'll absorb what is given in the text, and it will serve its purpose, its dramatic purpose in the text, and that's it for them. And others, you know, they want to know more. You know, there are different kinds of readers, and both are equally valid ways to approach, you know, a fantasy novel. I don't think one's necessarily better than the other, but it comes down to whatever you find most appealing. Some people get as much pleasure out of, say, you know, Tolkien's languages as they do out of, you know, the story that he told in Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion. That's fine. It, it's just a matter of taste. An approach. All right. What about from the point of view of a writer? Let's say that there are two stories that are otherwise equal, except that with one, the writer has gone through and conscientiously developed the languages and the cultures behind the characters in the book. And in the other, they're just kind of made up on the fly, maybe just like stage props or, you know, the houses that are made in movies that uh, are facades. You know, they have no depth to them, but they're just there for looks. I'm not sure what, what what's, your, what's the question. Oh, okay, from the point of view of the writer, uh, perhaps is one better than the other? Uh, certainly one takes more work than the other. But is each approach from the point of view of the writer here, not from the point of view of the reader, is each approach equally valid? From my point of view, what I do, you have to work it all out. I could not write, say, just, 
a book where I made everything up on the spot because, you know, literally I couldn't do it because I would start working out all this, you know, extraneous ancillary stuff. I just don't work that way. I don't see one approach as necessarily better than the other. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're trying to achieve a world that has an existence beyond the story, that is essentially a character in its own right, the world itself, then you definitely need to work everything out. But if what you're just doing is you're just telling a story and everything that you're using is just essentially stage props, then no, you really don't need to. Although trying to... There are some fantasy writers I know who try to fake it. They try to get that, you know, that feeling of depth and of reality beyond the book, but they're not able to achieve it because they haven't worked all that stuff out, because it is just random details that they're coming up with on the spot. I think if you're trying to fake it, I think that's a bad approach because readers will smell that. I mean, there's just a feeling to it. It'll come off as funny. You take a book, a fantasy, like, say, I don't know, say, Piers Anthony's Zap series. You know, those are, for the most part, you know, they're just comic fantasy novels. They're not uh, intended to, you know, present, you know, a deep, detailed world that has an independent existence. They're just like any other, you know, novel that you would pick up and read, where things aren't necessarily, you know, they don't have an existence beyond the story. Everything that's present works in the context of the story, and that's it. I think that if that is what you're aiming for, then, you know, so be it. You don't spend time working out, you know, all the background. But if you try to fake it, I think that's the wrong approach. I think if, if, if you want to write, say, the next Lord of the Rings or whatever, you really do have to do the work and not try to fake it. Because if you try to fake it, readers are going to know that. All right. So there's another issue that comes up here, and I don't think it's raised directly. Because I think what Jennifer Roberson is primarily concerned with is things like fan fiction, uh, which um, if you go on to read this FAQ, she objects to from a professional standpoint. But nevertheless, it's in the text. So this issue does come up. Specifically, can you copyright a language, specifically a created language, and can and should one stop others from using it? So, for example, let's say that in this, in this future there is a reader out there who is fascinated not only by your story, but by your language. And for whatever reason, they want to learn it, they want to use it in some context. And, and let's say that this isn't a commercial context. You know, this is, they're not trying to, uh, I don't know, create some sort of a phrase and then sell it on a T-shirt. They actually want to just use it in some creative or personal way. Is this something that professionally an author should object to? And is this something that legally should and maybe can be stopped? Well, there are two points of view there, two different ways of looking at it. You can look at it purely from an artistic standpoint, or you can also look at it from a business standpoint. If you look at it from an artistic standpoint, you know, myself, I would have no problem with anyone doing that. 
with you know learning a conlang of mine and speaking it and you know writing in it or whatever whatever they wanted to do but at the same time there's a business side to that and you know that's handled by you know an author's agent now literary agents for the most part will fight tooth and nail to keep stuff like that from happening they will you know quash fan fiction or any unauthorized use of the material from an author's works for two reasons number one it is seen as defending the copyright and two there are especially in fantasy all kinds of rich spin-off opportunities and there are new ones that spring up you know almost every day and it is a you know the agent's job to make that material as beneficial financially for the author as possible and that means hanging on to any and all rights you know ancillary rights secondary rights whatever you want to call them that might follow from the work so if you have a, a, a very successful you know piece of fiction that happens to contain you know conlangs or whatever um, from a business standpoint you are going to want to keep people from using it simply because you might want to do the same in the future to make money there might spin off opportunities and you know, that's handled by agents and you know from a purely business standpoint but from an artistic standpoint myself i don't have really any objections to that well this kind of raises an interesting point then because then what we have are two different types of conlangs conlangs that have been used in successful fictional works and conlangs that haven't and in fact there are, you know there are hundreds thousands of conlangs that was never the intent that wasn't the point of them. But it seems then that, though, it, it sets up this odd category where you have certain conlangs that have been used in other successful artistic works that now have potential copyright restrictions on their use, and then other conlangs that don't. How can that work? Well, legally speaking, I don't know if it is possible to copyright a conlang because it's not a you know dramatic work of fiction or a play or a screenplay or a film or anything like that. So it's difficult you know for me to give an answer on that whether <laughs> well, that's yeah. possible or not. Uh, it's kind of difficult for any of us. I mean, especially those of us that aren't lawyers, which is. Most of us. Yeah. I don't even know if there is a definitive answer to that because conlanging is, at least as an art form, that has not developed the kind of notoriety that, say, you know, novels have. Now, it's possible that, you know, in the future, if conlanging should become more popular and more widespread, that this very issue will be resolved and I suspect it will be resolved in favor of allowing conlangs to be subject to copyright, simply because they are, you know, an artistic expression. 
but they're not in a form or a medium that is you know familiar to most people. I suspect that if in the future the question ever comes up, it'll be resolved in favor of you know allowing copyright. That reminds me of two things, or, or two conlangs, two very uh, successful conlangs in particular. Uh, the first is Esperanto, that I think rendered all these discussions moot, because when Zamenhof created it, he specifically stated that it was kind of a gift to the world. In other words, he, um, after he created it, he disavowed all ownership of it and prevented anybody else from being able to own it. So there, that kind of renders all legal questions moot. Anybody can do what they want with it. Another one that comes to mind is Klingon. So, of course, Klingon was created by Mark Okrent for the, uh, I think it was for the movies, wasn't it? Star Trek movies? I, I couldn't tell you. I know that they had a Klingon language... You know, in the early days, it was it was very crude, I believe. But they brought him in. I'm thinking, was it Star Trek Two? I'm not sure. It was one of the star, It was one of the earlier Star Trek movies that okay. they brought him in specifically to redo the language for that that film, so that they could, you know, show it off. Okay, basically. so it was for the movies, and then I think what ha- what has happened since then is privately people have learned the language and use it. For example, the the Klingon Language Institute now offers courses, you know, home study courses where you can study yourself. And there have been works produced in it. And it seems to me that the way it works now is anybody can do whatever they want non-commercially with the language. They can privately use it and speak it and do whatever they want with it. But it seems that if some sort of a derivative work, such as the translations of the Bible and Hamlet and Gilgamesh, those have to go through Paramount. I think that's how it works. And I think that perhaps what you're suggesting is that kind of model, someday in the future, if this is legally settled, that is perhaps how it's going to work, you think? I think it will be, it'll probably be, depend on the individual and what, you know, restrictions, if any, they or their agents want. You know, I could certainly foresee legally a ban on any unauthorized use. Mm. That could certainly become the case. But I imagine that most conlangers, if they were to achieve that level of fame, would probably want to allow uh, non-commercial use, as you've described, while requiring authorization for any kind of commercial venture. Uh, I think it'll, it'll, that model will probably become the most common, although I can also foresee some who might want to ban any and all use simply because they and or their agents are very protective you know, of, of the property. Hmm. I think it could work either way legally. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out because for some reason I think that we're going to see it in our lifetime. You know, provided we quite possibly live yeah. to a nice ripe old age like we expect to, but I think it will happen. On an entirely separate note, we just got back from the third language creation conference in uh, Providence. 
and I was very fortunate to be able to see you both in person and to speak at the second conference in Berkeley and then again in the third conference at in Providence. Now that you've, uh, well, you're kind of a veteran, really. You've, you've given two talks, both of which have been very re- well received, by the way. I especially remember after, after your talk at LCC2, it was everybody was really, really silent during your talk, and it was kind of going and going and going, and then as soon as you finished, all these hands shot up in the air. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about your experience at the LCC these, these past two times? What's it been like? Oh, I've enjoyed myself a great deal at both of them. The meet and greet factor, you know, alone, you know, is worth uh, coming for. Because, you know, conlangers have traditionally tended to be very insular people. You know, we don't get out and meet each other a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to have a, uh, you know, a forum dedicated to that where a whole bunch of us, you know, can come together and just, you know, meet each other. And, um, you know, through talks and panels and stuff like that, share ideas. The conlanging as, you know, an art form, you know, has achieved that level where that's possible. You know, attendance has, you know, I I believe there were 20-some at the first and 35, 30 to 35 at the second, and more at the third. It's increased each time, I believe. Yeah, yes. It's gotten to the point that we are able, you know, to, you know, as a, you know, as a community to do that. Whereas, you know, say maybe, you know, five or ten years ago, it wouldn't have been possible. You wouldn't have been able to get you know, that many, you know, people together, especially art langers. But you know, it's grown by leaps and bounds in the last few years, and you know, you know I, I very much enjoy being a part of it. Well, I have to say that it was uh, it was really a pleasure to meet you at the at the second LCC, and it was great to be able to see you again. And um, yeah, it was great meeting you guys. And um, I just wanted to say uh, thanks very much for um, for participating in the interview. And oh, you're uh, welcome. No problem. I you know I had a blast. And we would definitely like to talk to you again after everything is all done with the Spirit Weaver and it gets out there. Yeah, um, I'm, you know, like I said, my aim is to have the thing done this summer. You know, if I have to give myself another month or two, you know, I'll do that. I'm not going to rush it or cut corners because I spent far too long on this, you know, to start doing that. But, I mean, it's not going to be, you know, four or five years down the road. It's going to be this year, spirits willing. (laughs) Right. Good luck, and uh, thanks again, Jeff. Thank you. You can find out more about Jeff's work on his blog, which can be found at weavingdazaria.wordpress.com. That's W-E-A-V-I-N-G-D-A-S-Z-E-R-I-A dot wordpress.com. Our intro and outro music is by Gary J. Shannon of fizzywig.com. Our audio editing and post-production is by Maximilian Crickle. This podcast would not be possible without you. So please, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for people to interview, music we could use, or an interesting story to share, email or IM us at lcs at conlang.org or visit our website, podcast.conlang.org. I hope you've enjoyed today's edition of the Language Creation Society podcast. See you next time. Fiat Lingua. Fiat Lingua.